Importantly, managers are in a brokerage role. They are brokering between these two forces, these two sets of demands. It's the demands from the workforce, and it's the demands that come from the traditional customer, which is what they want from the products or services. Those two demands have never had a philosophy that reconciled how to handle those two sets of demands. This is why management has always been such a freaking hard job. And so the bubble chart is right at the center of this. It's a way to handle the competing demands of the two sides of this multi-sided market. Welcome to the Work for Humans podcast. This is Dart Lindsley. A few months ago, Shalini Verma and I had a conversation about her groundbreaking approach to trauma-informed management. Well, Shalini's episode went viral globally. She's gotten a huge response from listeners. And quite a few of you specifically requested more information on one thing we mentioned in passing, which we call the bubble chart. The bubble chart's a tool we use to allocate and track work. It's a practical approach that companies can use to learn more about their teams, win work their employees want, and improve productivity without sacrificing happiness or fulfillment. So it does a lot of things. This episode is going to be a little different from most. Shalini will be acting as a co-host and interviewing me, or at least we're going to be interviewing each other. Many listeners may remember that Shalini has spent the last 10 years discovering and developing management tools through research, collaboration, and experimentation across industries, age groups, methodologies. And she's currently a groundbreaking leader of engineering teams at Google. Shalini and I talk about the management philosophy behind the bubble chart. We talk about how the bubble chart can be used to provide greater understanding between management and employees, how this understanding can help leaders create a safe place for employees to leave their comfort zones and grow, and how it helps grow teams in which every member is a leader. We also talk about how to determine business value and how to be a market maker manager who creates the relationships necessary to win the work your team will love. All right. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When you rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast, you are directly helping to create the kind of work people will love. If you haven't heard already, this past month, Work for Humans peaked at number 48 on the Apple charts for business management podcasts without any sort of paid promotions. And that is a result of people like you sharing the podcast. So thank you. And now, Without further ado, my conversation with Shalini Verma. Dart Lindsley, welcome to Work for Humans. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be on this show. You're so glad to have you here. Today, we're going to talk about the bubble chart. And the reason for that is that our conversation, where you were talking about your management philosophy and about trauma-informed management, there was a mention in there about the bubble chart. And I would love to talk about the response you've gotten to your to that interview. I do want to talk about that for a second. But one of the things that happened is that, is that a lot of people said, hey, you talked about this thing called the bubble chart, and we'd like to hear more. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, how has the response been to that, uh, to that first conversation that we had? Overwhelming, unexpected, and just incredible. I mean, I, I didn't realize that my experience and story would have so much resonance with so many people from totally different walks of life, psychologists and war veterans, trauma survivors teachers and educators, healers, nonprofits, like 
people working on diversity inclusion, just incredible. So it's been really eye-opening to realize that I think we're on the right track. There are people who really want to find ways to make work experience as a product. And I think that the bubble chart was probably the most popular thing that's been brought up. Like, where can I find that? Like, can you send me a link or show me that? So I think that's a good topic and maybe a great segue into this broader topic of work experience as a product. Great. So maybe we can start with where did the bubble chart come from? Okay. So I've done something like the bubble chart for many years. Back when I was an individual contributor and there was too much demand for my work, I had the prototype of the bubble chart. And it was a simple two by two in which one axis was, and this is the X axis. This is going to be hard because we're going to be talking about a visual diagram. And so I need to speak about it in a way that is going to be visual for people listening to a podcast. We'll probably include some drawings in the links so that people can look at that if they'd like to. But the x-axis of this chart, it's a two-by-two, is business value. The y-axis of the chart is core to mission, which is, is it the job that I am supposed to be doing? And to some extent, what is the highest margin use of my time? And I used to plot all of my projects on that two-by-two that exceeded my capacity. And I'd go to my management team and I'd say, look, these are the things that I could be working on. I think I should be working on things in the top right. And we would have a discussion and it would help me to focus my attention. Well, what happened over the years is I began managing teams and I realized that that exact same kind of a method could help to focus our time. But I added a dimension because my philosophy as a manager evolved. And the dimension that I added was, for my team is, how rewarding is your work? So now we have three dimensions plus time allocation. So one is the x-axis, which is business value. The y-axis, which is a core to mission. The size of the bubble is how much is of your attention is going to a particular category of work. And the color of the bubble is how rewarding is it to you? Is it fun? And what's the management philosophy behind it? What's interesting about the bubble chart is that people really like the bubble chart because of its practical day-to-day utilitarian, you know, value. It helps you to get things done on a day-to-day basis with a team. But the philosophy behind it goes pretty deep, which is that I believe that employees are customers. That means that every business is a multi-sided business, which means that it has two customers. One customer is the customer for the products whatever products or services that the company traditionally sells. And the other customer is employees. And if employees are a customer, then what are they buying? They're buying an experience of work. And so the experience of work becomes a product. And what that does is it puts the whole company into a brokerage model, which is that there's Demand coming in from customers, which needs to make it to the workforce to actually produce products or services that the customer wants, the traditional customer. But there's another flow, which is that there's work coming in from the traditional customer, which needs to be transformed and allocated in such a way that it's going to satisfy the other customer, which is the employee. And so the bubble chart is right at the center of this. It's a way to handle the competing demands of the two sides of this multi-sided market. And importantly, in a multi-sided business like that, 
managers are in a brokerage role. They are brokering between these two forces, these two sets of demands. It's the demands, uh, the needs that come from the workforce for what the workforce wants from work. And it's the demands that come from the traditional customer, which is what they want from the products or services. This is why management has always been such a freaking hard job, is because those two demands have never had a philosophy that reconciled how to handle those two sets of demands. I mean, we've talked about this. The traditional philosophy of business and of human resources is that employees are an input to production. And as such, we think about them very narrowly, that we have traditionally, and this opens it up to a much a much richer conversation between these two halves of a business. So what's really interesting, and you know, if I've had a, the luxury of listening to a lot of your episodes, and you kind of explore these concepts of like work experience as a product and like all the different elements of that. And one thing that struck me, and I'm curious, is maybe you could, you could shed some light on is, why? Why change to, from input to production to this new model? What do you gain from it? Or what's the impact of a poor work experience that you've seen? And I know you've explored it in some of your conversations with Gary and, and Barry and Alder. Yeah, I'm going to tackle it from a couple of different directions. New business models can be one of the most disruptive forces in business. And that's what this is. This is a recommendation that we move to a different business model. And it's a business model that looks at employees as a customer and therefore sees the whole employee and all of that employee's needs, not just the part of the employee's needs that we want to extract. And so I think about Netflix and Blockbuster. And so for anybody, I, this may be an analogy, a business analogy that comes primarily from the United States. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of the history which is that Blockbuster used to rent videotapes um, back in the day and then eventually DVDs. Netflix came along and it offered a different business model. Blockbuster, you would go and you would rent something. And it, if you were late, they charged you late fees. And something like a third of their revenue actually came from late fees. And as a business model, it had two main products. One product was it handed out videos. The second thing was self-loathing which is I constantly hated myself for not turning in the video that I lost under the seat of my car. And now they want to charge me $40 in late fees for the video that I didn't even like. And Netflix came along and they offered a completely different model. They said, look, we're going we're gonna to give you DVDs. We're going to give you those things, but it's going to be a subscription. As soon as you return us one, we will give you one back. And so all of a sudden, my self-loathing went away. And anytime you have a product that has as a, one of, as a part of its delivery self-loathing, you've created a huge opportunity for a competing business model to come in and completely disrupt you. That's what this business model that I'm recommending is. It's a disruptive business model. And it happens to have come along at a very, very important time in our history, which is the time when we all, because of COVID, had a moment to stand back and look at our work from a distance and ask ourselves, how is that product? Is that the product I want to continue to buy? So what's important about this, companies that adopt this approach, this philosophy, is going to get a lot more from their workforce because when a whole person comes to work and is given a product that addresses them as a whole person. Imagine a company where 
every single person in the company is receiving an experience that addresses them as a whole person and that they are able to then contribute to. I completely agree. In fact, the bubble chart was really appealing to me when I, when you first discovered it with you. And initially my intent was just to look for resource allocation tools or techniques. And I didn't consciously recognize this notion of work experience as a product so concretely. But what I was using it for was ways to understand more deeply the other dimensions that really motivate and inspire the individual so that they could move into flow states and to be more productive and more creative. Something you talked about with Donald Norman around the pipeline. Who are your customers? There's your end user of a product, but then there's also all the guys in between, like there's your supply chain folks or there's your distributors. Or if you can start to like find the potential and really energize and uplift the individuals along this pipeline, Michael Pollan, what's that book? It's like the um, Omnivore's Dilemma, his book. And he talks about when, when, when people start eating food, I mean, that book was hugely popular. But he talked about like, where does your food come from? And he actually did the history of four meals, I think, and looked at like, where is it grown? And like, how are the people treated? And all the elements that come into what you're actually putting into your body. And it, you know, it was very, very popular book. And, I, and it kind of, you're, you're, the way you've talked about these things in your podcasts and you know, through our conversation is this same kind of notion is like, instead of just the end user, like, so we have products in our company, we want the end user, but then we grind our people into the ground in the hopes of getting this great end user product. And we've completely lost the individuals in that process. We're churning and burning them. Whereas what I've discovered is if you take them into account, what you create far exceeds anything you might dream up thinking about it as inputs to production. And I'm kind of curious, like, what's your experience been with this tool and in general using this approach, in, you know, in the organizations that you've been in? Yes. And then I want to hear about your experience using it. So first of all, the way I think of what you were just talking about is that a team is like kindling a fire. And that's the right way to think about it, which is that with a fire, you don't just think about the wood. It's the wood and it's the oxygen. So there's two sides to any combustion, any reaction. And the, the two sides of a team are the work that comes into the team and how the team feels about that work. And then the opposite flow, which is that the, the work that the team does that then goes to the, to the traditional customer. So if you can kindle that fire by really balancing the needs of both sides of that equation, it's way, way more powerful. I want to sort of draw a picture of how this gets used in, in my organization. On a monthly basis, the team takes a look at their work and they spend about five minutes answering a small handful of questions, which is, how much time did I allocate to different projects? And it's a percentage of a percentage of your attention is what we care about. And this is actually, you've used it a little differently, and I'm very interested in that, which is you use it as an, as an absolute, how many hours did you put in? But I do it as a percentage. And the reason is that I see the bubble chart as a way to allocate attention to what's most important and what's best for the team. William James said that consciousness is an attention-allocating device. And for me, the bubble chart is an attention-allocating device. It's a way to ask yourself, are we paying attention to the right stuff? And should we reallocate our attention? So on a monthly basis, the team says, what projects am I working on right now? And how am I feeling about them? And we have a, a scale from one to five, and it goes from the best project I've ever worked on to the next one is I'm in a flow, everything's great. 
The next one is, it's like eating stale cupcakes, which is, it's not, it's not terrible, but I've had better. And the next one down is, it's like sleeping in wet clothes. I'm not having a good time. And the one below that is, I'm, I'm walking on glass. I'm really hating this project. And that's the red. If anything goes into the yellow, we will talk about it as a team when we review it on a monthly basis. So one thing you collect is what projects you're working on, how much time is allocated to them, and how are you feeling about them? And then the other two dimensions change more slowly, which is that a project can become not core to mission for my team if the role that we're playing on that project starts to change from what we are designed to do, which is to to improve processes. If we start being project managers on a project, for instance, that that bubble will fall and it'll stop being in core to mission and it'll drop into lower core to mission. Or if the risk of a project becomes too terrible, like all of a sudden we're facing all these headwinds, let's say that the sponsor was uh, left the company. If the sponsor left the company, that project is now really risky and the risk-adjusted business value of that project will fall. And so over time, you have to track all of these dimensions, but it doesn't take very much time. It takes about five, 10 minutes per person on a monthly basis to just keep track of these things. And what happens then is that the team develops these dimensions. So what does it mean to us as a team to call something high business value? What does it mean to us as a team to say that something's core to mission? And what does it mean to us as a team to say that something is highly rewarding? Well, we come up with these ideas together. So now we're all together thinking about how we're paying attention to work. And what it's done for me is that my team has become, this is not the only way that this happens, but it has become a team of leaders where every single person on the team is a leader, is engaged in where we're going as a team, is engaged in helping to redefine these dimensions if we need to, and how we're going to track it. And on a monthly basis, we come together and we talk about how's it going. Are we doing, uh, paying attention to the right stuff? And what work is coming in new? Is that new work going to land in the right quadrant here? Does one person really want this work more than another person? We should allocate it to them. So those are the sorts of conversations that drives. How do you determine business value? So we're supporting people operations, and people operations is fairly deep inside the organization. So it's not like you can just point at revenue and say, it's going to create this level of revenue. What we do is, and every team is going to come up with something different. I would imagine that a product team, for instance, might say, is this taking this product in the strategic direction that we care about most or something like that? But what we do is we say, what's the breadth of impact? So how many people inside the organization are going to be affected? What is the depth of the impact? Sometimes only a few people are affected, but they are affected deeply. And then how direct is the impact? Which is sometimes you're working on something that if you get it done, it will help, help something else to happen better. It's not as direct an effect. And so we care about that and we care about risk, which is what are the odds that if we work on this project, that it's actually going to make the difference that we expect it to make. And so that's, four, that's an example of four things that we have in there. It doesn't have to be highly detailed. There's always a temptation to get very specific in your operational definitions of these things, because it would be lovely to put a dollar amount on business value, for instance. But you really care mostly about which quadrant work is landing in. You don't care about where it lands in the quadrant very much. and so. 
it's not that fine-tuned an instrument. And you can waste a lot of time with false specificity trying to get specific inside a quadrant, but mostly you care. If it's top right, great. That should be a big bubble. Is it a green bubble? Great. If it falls into other quadrants, it actually has different meanings. Sometimes you still work on that. It's not always a failure if it's in another quadrant. So how do you, I mean, it sounds like you also track things over time and look at trends or analytics around it. And I'd love to hear more about that. As a part of keeping track of projects, we've mentioned the, the four dimensions that we track already. We also sometimes put other attributes against those projects. And what we track in the bubble chart can feed tracking of those other things. So an example is we have, what's the main objective of the projects we're working on? It can be cost, it can be employee experience, it can be risk management, it can be compliance, it can be these different things. Well, if we decide as a company that it's time for us to focus more on it, on employee experience than on something else, we can actually see, are we changing our attention? Because over time, we can see how much of our attention has been allocated to different primary purposes of the projects. And so one time we, we did go, we went from, I think it was cost and risk, and we went to employee experience. Well, over time, did our allocation grow? It did. And so we were able to show that we were an organization that could be responsive to business need, strategic need. Makes sense. And so I'm kind of curious, like when you first introduced this to a team, how do they respond? The first thought is, oh, this looks like micromanagement. I'm going to be tracking my time. I'm a professional. And so the first thought, the first fear is, oh, my goodness, we've come into this is going to be terrible, which is why. It's actually one of the reasons why I focus on a percent of attention as opposed to absolute time is that absolute time can become micromanagement, but percentage of attention isn't. I don't care if somebody's working. I mean, I do care if they're working 60 hours, but the bubble chart doesn't care if somebody's working 60 hours or, or 40 or 20 hours as long as the work's getting done. But over time, what happens is the team realizes that this is their tool. This is not a management tool. This is a team tool where we can have conversations. If a bubble turn goes into the yellow or orange, we ask ourselves if there needs to be an intervention. Do we need to swap projects with somebody? Maybe somebody else is going to love that project. Should we, should we do a lateral? Should we stop the project? Should I step in? Like uh, once one of our clients was bullying somebody on the team. And that was making them very unhappy. This was years ago. This was like five years ago. So I just started attending the meetings. As long as I was in the meetings, they weren't getting bullied. And so it's just the right intervention. And so what kinds of things have you noticed, whether challenges or opportunities that uncovered through this tool in terms of creating the work experience as a product? So let's talk for a second about sort of the economy here. When people are inputs to production, what do I care about them? If that's all I'm thinking about, I'm going to give you only what I am absolutely certain is going to make you productive. And it tends to devolve into more pay or potentially less work. That seems to be the levers that exist in input production model. But once I recognize that you're a customer, then all of a sudden I need to develop a much deeper understanding of what you want. So 
for years now, I've been, I've been conducting these interviews that you know about, which are about asking people marketing questions about their work. And these marketing questions are saying, if this is a product, what are the design attributes of this product that you want? Now, why this matters so much is that the bubble chart is about optimizing you getting the kind of work that you really want. Well, I then need to have a very deep understanding of what it is you want. Asking people marketing questions has, I'll just cite one example for the purposes of this interview, is that some people like a stage where they can stand up and have an audience. And if they have that kind of work, they're really happy. Some people like a very particular kind of puzzle. They like a Rubik's Cube kind of puzzle problem, or they like a greenfield solve hunger kind of problem. And so by knowing what people like, it's part of a manager's job to do two things. One is to do their very best to allocate work based upon employee preference. And the second thing is to win the kind of work that the team wants to consume. And so sometimes you can't win the kind of work that the team wants. Ideally, what you would be doing is you'd be winning 30% more work than the team can consume. And therefore, that gives you some wiggle room to take and allocate work in a way that people is really going to enjoy. Well, the practicalities of, of work are that uh, most of your team has already allocated something, something comes in, you don't have that much choice about who you allocate it to. You do your best. So there's some realities of business. But there have been times when there were a handful of people on my team and we did not have a service line as a team that was going to win them the kind of work that they wanted. So for instance, two people on my team were creatives. And we were doing very analytical work and they were looking something for something more creative. And I said, well, look, what line of business, what service could we offer inside the organization that would actually start winning the kind of work that you want to do? And the answer was they wanted to be doing experience design and experience modeling. I said, great, let's stand that up as a service. And so we put up a sign saying we did experience design to see if we could win that kind of work. We started winning that kind of work and that became a part of our service line. So now we had, we had established a new market inside the organization that, and a new service that was drawing in the kind of work that they needed. So it's not the sort of thing that happens right away all the time, but it's the sort of thing that you can work towards strategically. So actually, that brings me to another question. One thing that struck me, I think it was in your conversation with Jeffrey Parker, where you talked about platforms and multi-sided markets and how work experience as a product is an example of that. Um, and one of the things that struck me it's almost like as a manager, certainly as you go higher up in the organization, you become a market maker because you're bringing in business or you're bringing in opportunities and how well you're both able to bring in opportunities that match the skills and passions or interests of your staff will determine your output, the quality of your output, the quantity of your output and so on. And then you can potentially grow. So that's one question is like, do you see it that way as like market makers? They're designers, but then also market makers. They're market makers and rainmakers. So when the team is really working great, they're out there and they are winning the kind of work that the team wants to do. And there's sort of this question of like, well, if the team wants to do it, but it's not for good for the business, should you do it? There's two things there is no, <laughs> right? It has to be something that the business really needs and that is going to land in the top right quadrant. But I think it's important to know we are never completely certain about what is best for the company. And so there's some uncertainty about that. And so that gives you some room to 
to pick the work that the team wants to do because you're not absolutely sure what's the most valuable thing to do sometimes. So there's your demand side of it, right? Which is like bringing things in and like creating the market or creating the opportunities for your, your team to, to have them. There's also the supply side. And I'm kind of curious about that too, is like you've mentioned, I think in one of our conversations that what people tell you they want may not be actually what they want, maybe because they haven't reflected or they're not even comfortable saying what it is that they really want because they're not proud of it or whatever. So I guess I'm curious, have you built that over time? Do you like bring it up with them? Is it a trust? Are you building a relationship and so they feel more comfortable sharing the real or is it you reading into it? Like, how do you, how do, you do that? It's funny because I don't think I know. I think you go deeper with your team than I do. There's a second way to allocate work. One way to allocate work is that I, as a manager, am responsible for allocating work. But the second way to allocate work is to let the team pick it, to give the, the team the degrees of freedom that they can choose it. And I try as much as I can to strike that balance between the two. I'm asking the team to make good judgment for themselves. And I'm basically trusting them to do the best they can for themselves in this model. But it's very possible that sometimes people don't want to say what they really want. I don't know what to do about that. Yeah. I mean, that is something that I delve quite a bit into. And I actually, my personal like view is that really the growth and what I've experientially kind of experienced is the better you can match those two sides, what people really want, what are their motivations and triggers to get them and how do you get them into states of flow in the work that they're doing? And then part of what I do is, of course, how well can I read into that? And it, a lot of it, at least in my experience, has been how well can I clear myself to tune into more intuitively what it is they want, whether or not they're saying it explicitly or not, and creating a safe enough space so they can start to share more openly and feel comfortable. There's no judgment, no criticism. So the better I do that, the more I understand and can deepen the understanding of what they want. And then I think a couple of things I've started noticing. One is, Yes, I'm definitely a market maker because I'm doing the same exact exercise with our partners, who you could argue is our customer that my teams are working with. Let's say the engineering leaders. I'm able to tune into what they want and what they need. And now it becomes a little bit of, and this is where I think we can really tap into some of the research around leveraging our subconscious, these supercomputers that are capturing millions of data points, verbal and nonverbal, you know, written, unwritten, all of the time. So one of the things I've started exploring is I start in a single space. So it's like, can I build a relationship with the, per, you know, the individuals that have influence power, a lot of the projects and, you know, things that my team would want? How do I identify those individuals and then build a relationship so they trust me? They want to give us work. They want to share what's going on for them. I can now start connecting the dots. So a lot of what I'm doing ultimately then is reading individuals, situations, companies, and trying to figure out ways to like optimize now? How do we start to find the sweet spots for both every person and an organization to both meet the passions, skills, interests of the individuals and develop teams that now do this? They're complementary. So it's not about cloning every person. It's about how do I optimize each person's gifts, like help them manifest them in the workplace in a way that's in service of the larger objective of the company. And the better I'm able to do this both in a team and for the individual, that's when you start to build momentum. There's so much in there. First of all, there is the other side of this, of this market, which is it's the people who are providing work to your team. In an upcoming interview that I've already conducted the interview, but it's, uh, it is still in the can, is with Fred Reichhold. And he's the person who invented uh, the net promoter score and the concept of customer loyalty. Well, the other part of this, you know, sort of management system is 
that at, at the end of every project, we do a net promoter assessment to understand what could we do better. Because we have to win the work that we want. So yeah, it's super important to do that. And there's this other thing, and this is something I think goes to intuition to some extent, is I think you can hold your hands up to an organization and you can just feel the heat of where the demand is. You can feel the heat of what people really want. And you can start to package a set of services and uh, market your services in such a way that it, it meets that and can harness that energy. And so I agree. There's, in my case anyway, the market for the, my team is much larger than my team. So I can get very detailed with my team about what it is that they're looking for, but it, I have to just hold my hands up and feel the heat and then go to those coals and see if I can kindle them into flame. It's more fire metaphors. So tell me your experience of using the bubble chart in your organization. How did that start and what value have you gotten out of it? So it started when I discovered it through you. I was trying to figure out ways to allocate resources and projects. And I was hunting around the company and in the industry to find best practices or tools that I could use. And I ran into yours and it sounded really intriguing to me. And then when I started applying it, I mean, a lot of my work, even up to that point, was very much about how do I build safe spaces and trust with my team so that they'll share more with me? And how do I allow the whole human, you know, instead of just the work, compartmentalize the work piece, how do I enable that? So I was already starting to capture and leverage tools like the Enneagram for like understanding people's underlying motivations and triggers, getting them to see that. So this was a really nice complement to that because it allowed me to bridge what might have been previously characterized as really touchy-feely, the emotional side of things that doesn't really concretely manifest in the workplace to something that was really concrete. Because now I could take their personal interests, their motivation triggers, like even leverage the Enneagram for helping them figure out what motivates them and what kind of things would they enjoy to something like, what are the projects we're working on? How does that fit into the value the, to the organization? So we started with that. And then what was really interesting to me was it led to a whole bunch of things. Like, how do you figure out what's core to mission? We started doing vision and mission exercises with the team collectively to have that more concretely stated. So I would use it as part of a charter exercise with my teams to like figure out what is our mission? How do we think about business value? What are the strategic goals of the organization? Getting familiar with that is it was even an excellent exercise. And then it was even, how do you figure out whether or not you're this project, like how much you're enjoying it? Sure, there's the visceral, I love it or I don't. But there's also like, what is your journey? What is your purpose? What is your like personal mission? And how does this fit in that? So really started getting opening that conversation up about what gives you flow? What gets you in a flow state? What drains your energy? What energizes you? And then how much of that's in your work? So we really started to use it for that. Then what I discovered was I was actually, to your point, using it as starting to look at like percentage of time. And the reason was a lot of folks, I lead a team of program managers, they're in a hundred places working on a hundred different things. It's very easy to get stretched really thin really quickly. And if you're good, then people, more and more people want you on their projects and it can very easily get out of hand. And when you're working with ambitious, accomplished individuals who never want to say no, one of the challenges that I've seen happen is like they struggle to set boundaries. So one of the things that I found that it was useful for was for some of them, it would give them a crutch to say, I would love to work on this, but I got this crazy boss who's tracking all our work. And so, you know, I need to see how it fits into the whole scheme of things and I'll get back to you. It could allow us to have a backlog and say, are we working on the right things? I could go to my end counterparts or my PM counterparts and say, hey, this is what my team's working on. This is what our assessment of value is. What do you think? You know, and we could get feedback and validate and align on what they're doing so that 
my team is recognized for it. They know that they're working on the right projects. I can even get into conversations of, here are the top priorities of the, of the, of the organization or the sub-organization. Why aren't we working on those things? Maybe there's a perfectly good reason. Maybe it doesn't need that type of work right now. But maybe there are other things. We don't have a demonstrated success. We don't have good relationships. Maybe we haven't accommodated, engaged the right stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. So at least it gets to open conversations like that. Then what I started noticing too was when I started looking at the workload, I actually shared this, you know, one of the VPs I worked with said, I don't know what program managers are even working on in our org. So I put this together. I anonymized it so that there was no fear of sharing how people felt on these projects, um, rolled it up. And his feedback was like, whoa, 50% of your team's working like 120 hours or whatever, 100 hours. Like, does that mean they're working on weekends and evenings? I'm like, that's what it means. And his initial response was, oh my God, we got to get together. We got to cut down the projects and reprioritize. And my response to him was like, actually, that's exactly what we shouldn't do. What I think we should do instead is have a conversation with your leads to figure out what should be the organizational priorities. The reason my team is spread so thin is because the folks they're working with, the key stakeholders are working on a hundred different things. That's what, exactly what it led to. We had a, an offsite where we specifically talked about, we did a maturity assessment. We, did, we shared the feedback for the bubble chart. We used that to identify what are the priorities and then what's the capacity of the organization for these priorities. And naturally, then my team realigned to those smaller set of priorities with the engineering leads in this case, you know, product management engineering leads. So I've used it for that purpose too. I've also used it for things like socializing it. So you mentioned like there may be stakeholders that don't understand what we do or they're giving work to my team that isn't aligned to our mission. I could go to them and say like, we're not going to do this work. That doesn't always go very well in terms of a conversation. And sometimes it's an investment. Maybe it's a new relationship we're building. This is the only work they have. I want to build a relationship with them. I want them to see what we're capable of. So I might choose, like my team might choose to do that. And that's one thing I was going to mention. One thing that I really use this tool for is while I am a market maker, I'm looking at kind of, I have a view that they don't necessarily have because I'm looking across the board and I'm working with more executive leadership. So I can see opportunities and directions and trends and things like that. But my goal is really to empower each of them. So what I actually try to do more of is they have lots of skills and interests and passions. They're also seeing things. And you talked about this with, I think, Gary Hamill, where you want to move away from everything moving up the org in a traditional hierarchy management chain and then back down into the organization. They have the best insights into what's happening on the ground. I don't have that insight on a, such a real-time basis. So empowering them to become market makers and to see where the trends and opportunities are, to build those relationships with their counterparts is far more powerful than me trying to do it from the top. So anyway, that's just a few examples of the kind of things we use. Yes. There's a couple of things in there. <laughs> One is I want to talk about the different quadrants and what they might mean if work is landing in them. If work is landing in the top right-hand quadrant, everything's cool. It's really not that complicated a discussion. It's high value. It's, it's core to mission. As long as it's green, great. We want big bubbles. We want lots of big bubbles up in the top right-hand corner. But there are things that are that end up in the top left-hand quadrant. They're not asking us for something that is our highest margin value that we can produce for them. So it's lower business value, but it's still our role. An example of that for us is we're not going to improve a process. We're going to figure out how to measure a process. Well, measuring a process produces no independent value. It only produces value when you turn it into projects that are then going to improve that measure. Or somebody wants us to do something that's really kind of menial, like could you document this process end to end? Well, if it will help us to develop a relationship with you and you can, we can show you how effective we are, then it's a, it's a good way to do it. 
There's another thing that, that shows up way on the far left-hand side and toward the top, which is experiments. My team is going to experiment on some kind of new service or something that's going to help us to later provide value. Well, we're the only people who can experiment on our own practice. So it's 100% core to mission for us. But it's not going to provide anybody value unless it's successful. So it's very risky. We're still going to do it. It's going to have a little bubble over there, and we're going to conduct experiments. Sometimes things show up down and to the right. They are not core to mission, but they are high business value. Those are the sorts of things you do when the company needs you to be scrappy because there's a must do. And they can't use you for what your expertise is, but somebody's got to do it. And your team's going to make a sacrifice to do that. And you agree to do that. And then lastly, there's a bottom left-hand corner. Usually those things are bad ideas. But if somebody wants to train on something new, it's just a training opportunity. It's totally cool to have a bubble down there that is something that somebody is just trying out for themselves. That's great. So the different quadrants, they drive different conversations. And in fact, there's another one, which is you have a little bubble way up high into the right. Why is it so little? Should we double down on that? It's high value. It's core to mission. Are we not committing enough time to it? So that's another kind of conversation that can happen. I love it. One thing I did want to raise with you, actually, before I go into that, is there anything else that you wanted to cover? Not on that. How about in general? No, that's been pretty, pretty complete coverage so far. All right. So I will ask you a couple of questions that I actually have then. Okay. What are some of the elements that you think about in the context of work experience as a product? And you've touched on a few of them, I think, but I'm, I'm curious if there's other pieces to it that you've specifically been thinking about. I re actually recognize this as a gap. There are not enough dimensions on the bubble chart to capture another dimension. So B Corps have been invented to essentially have a different mission from a traditional for-profit corporation. Their mission is triple-sided, which is we're going to do the best thing for our customers, we're going to do the best thing for the environment, and we're going to do the best thing for employees. What the bubble chart does is, is it operationalizes doing good things for the, for the workforce, which is delivering the best kind of work that the, that the team wants to do. But I don't have a dimension in there for environment. Well, there should probably be that if I'm a B Corp. Maybe that's something that we can invent. But yeah, I do think that there are other dimensions that could be considered. Yes. Something else I've been thinking about too is, I think I mentioned to you, there's this book I recently started reading called Extended Mind. And then there's Gary Klein, who looks at expert decision-making. And this is something I was chewing on. I'm kind of curious your thoughts around is the company wants productivity, right? It wants output, innovation, output, creativity, productivity. One of the ways to characterize that might be like, we want more insights and we want less errors. And then it's a question of how do you get more insights? So there are two, two axes of which I'm think, thinking about this. One is there's your fear of failure. Can you create a culture of experimentation, iteration, and learning? And to your point, maybe looking at stuff on the, encouraging people to have more stuff on the top left quadrant. Experiments. Are we running enough experiments? Are we developing a culture? And how many of those are actually ending up as actual projects? could be an interesting dimension to try to look at to see, are you fostering enough of that? Is there a room for that? Is there a safety in that, et cetera? Then he talks about this notion of reflection and processing of errors, coincidences and anomalies, our willingness to challenge our underlying beliefs or assumptions. And so this too, it's like comes back to like, how comfortable do people feel? Like how willing are they to change how they do things? And of course, you know, the work I do is really like, how do you acknowledge some of your own emotional behavioral patterns, maybe your previous traumas and experiences to start seeing how you operate 
And then how can you loosen the grip of even things like failure to notice things like it's an anomaly? Maybe people are scared of going into that because that might mean I have to change how I see my mental model of this, how this whole thing works, the certainty. So an ability to go into the uncertainty. Then he talks about intuition and expert decision makers. He looks at firefighters. I think in uh, Sarah Garfinkel's work, it's like the traders, but it's this looking at hard data and soft data. How can you tune into your, the signals coming in from the body? And the more you, one thing I've kind of discovered is it goes back to Kahneman's work. So one of the questions I got recently in a, in a workshop was, I thought our subconscious has a lot of errors. It's fast, but it's erroneous. And one thing that I realized when I was thinking about that was a really good question is that, yes, it's based on programming from the past, your genetics, and then from your experiences. And I almost think of it like transducers. We have a bunch of transducers on our bodies picking up. Now, if they're caked in mud, the signals you're going to get are going to be distorted. But there are things you can do to clear the transducers through healing and through reflection and so on. Then the signals get are better. So what you want to start doing is you want to start tuning into those signals. Just start. They're going to be rusty. They're going to be caked in mud. That's okay. You take most decisions we make don't have to be done immediately. So you can start to look at like, what are my gut instincts and how, what are the patterns I'm seeing? Then as you start to clear them, the signals get clearer. And that's what I've started experiencing. So what you reflect then has a lot more resonance. You start making better decisions. So that kind of thing he talks about. And the last is, of course, experience. That's like a baseline. But you can have two people been in the same role forever. And one of them's an expert and the other is not. The thing that was coming to mind for me for the work that you've been doing is if you look at how do we increase insights, for example, one of the things that Annie Murphy-Paul talks about in her book, Extended Mind, is this notion of embodied uh, cognition, situated cognition, and distributed cognition. Embodied comes back to this notion of intuition. Are you tapping into your body? Movement, for example, is a way to crystallize abstract thoughts they found in a lot of the research. Even fidgeting is called gestural foreshadowing. Really fancy way to say that I got fidgeting. I fidget. But it's actually a way to crystallize abstract thought. So things that we can do, like in the workplace then, or in designing work experience as a product, can we now start taking these factors into account to do the thing the company wants most, which is, in theory, increase insights, reduce errors, improve productivity. Then there's situated cognition. This goes to your work with Susie Wise, which is how do you create a sense of belonging? And what they found in the research is the more a sense of belonging you have, the more time you spend in nature or looking at scenes of nature, increase in your insights and your cognition. Even walking down a tree-lined street versus walking down a traffic-lined street made a difference in the research around how well people, their cognitive function. And the last one, which I think is really interesting in the work that you're doing, is how do you start to amplify this with teams? The bubble chart does this at an individual level, but it also is looking at it as a team. And distributed cognition is all about how do we amplify the collective, the collective intelligence or collective wisdom. When people start moving to flow states, you get into the hive mind. I read this amazing book called Stealing Fire that's all about the neurobiology of flow state. And they talked about psychonauts, mystics, and peak performance athletes all chasing the same state. And the first scene in the book is a military operation. It was a stealth operation where it was dark and dangerous. They couldn't talk to each other, but they were practicing this technique where they were all able to get into this flow state that they didn't need to talk. They were like a hive mind. And there's all kinds of examples in the book, but I guess that's my, it's a very long-winded way of saying, I guess what comes to mind for you when you think about like some of the elements of creating work experience as a product? So there's a couple of things in there. First of all, you just mentioned something that I had not thought of before, which is imagine all of the different teams that work together on a particular product, for instance, who are all managing their own bubble charts. And now what you can do is you can start to look across the ecosystem of an organization and you can say, let's look at the health of a particular project. How are different teams placing this project on their bubble chart? And what 
Are they red, yellow, or green? And if you start to see a pattern of red spreading across a particular project or a particular product, then you can start to ask yourself, we've got a, a health problem here for this entire ecosystem. So that's super interesting. The second thing is, so let's say you're looking at a, a bubble chart of your team and you see something that's high into the right, high business value and it's, and it's core to mission, but it's gone into the red. I think you would have a very different conversation about that than I might with my team because of how you approach teams. So one way to look at that would be to say, well, this person's getting triggered about something. And let's actually use that as an opportunity to have a discussion. And it might not be a discussion as a whole team. It might be with the individuals. Because one thing about the bubbles is that a lot of times when you look at them in aggregate, it's, it's three people on your team are working on the same project. So the way we do our bubbles is the color of the bubble is the lowest person on the team. So the person who is least happy. And so the reason is that people don't feel the average of unhappiness of project team members. They feel their personal happiness or unhappiness. And so we look at the lowest and we intervene if one person goes low. But it, that seems like an opportunity where you might go in and say, let's, let's have a conversation about what's happening here and what's, the, what's deeper for you about that. So actually, I get quite a bit of joy <laughs> when I see reds and yellows on the bubble chart because it's an invitation. Because otherwise, it's like it's going to be micromanagement and, you know, it's like spending time doing things that may not be a useful time for this particular employee. But when they're having trouble, that's when I can come in. And usually, almost always, there's emotions associated with that. They're stressed about something. They're not getting support in a particular area. Stakeholders not treating them well. They don't feel like it's a priority anymore. Whatever it is. There is emotion associated with it. And more often than not, it's related to their own triggers and motivations, their own traumas and their experiences. So it's a chance for me to deepen my connection with them. That's like my sweet spot. When there's pain and suffering, and this is something that I've been thinking more about, which is something to think about with your bubble chart. I've had every like joint damaged in some form, car accident, ski accident, whatever, neck, back, knees, messed them all up. At one point I had, it was so, I have seen so much pain I pulled a muscle in my neck. I couldn't even travel anymore. I was traveling every week. I started working with this personal trainer who introduced me to these yoga balls, which are basically like everything from tennis ball all the way to golf ball kind of consistencies. What he would have me show me is that you can work on your neck if your neck's bugging you, but it's going to come back because because of the fascia, there's a whole bunch of other things pulling on your neck. So it's going to come right back. What he basically taught me is find the root cause of your neck pain, which may be a knot in my calf or in my low back or whatever. I was on so many painkillers I ended up with an ulcer. And so this was like gold. I started looking for those spots of pain because I knew that if I'm willing to work through it, my system will heal by going to those points of pain. And I have found the same thing in organizations. Using the bubble chart, I can see where are their sources of pain with either individuals or with projects. And it always comes back to individuals in the projects. It may not be the person on my team, but it may be someone in the team. So what it does is it invites me in to the largest sources of pain in an organization. And you can start to see it over time. And my kind of challenge is, don't give me your best and let's make them brighter, like every leadership program in the, in the world does. Give me your worst. Give me your misfits and your troublemakers, whatever that, that storyline is. But give me the where the most pain and suffering is, because I have found in every single case, if you can go in there and move through that and find out what it is that's making people suffer and struggle, and meet them where they're at, and validate their pain, and then help them move through it, the results are absolutely remarkable. Those are the diamonds in the rough, in my experience, when the system will actually start to heal. 
So the bubble chart's really powerful. And that's why I get so much joy. The same way I got it when I found the knots in my body to heal the whole system. I get quite a bit of joy when I see areas of pain because now it's an invitation to come in. They want help. Going in to help someone that doesn't want it, the success is, you might as well not even bother. You're wasting your time. Even when people want to change and want help, it's tough. But that's like an invitation to come in and be there and meet them wherever they're at and show them how powerful like having a manager that's thinking of your work experience as a product can be. Yeah. First of all, I think that's, that's real wisdom. And it's more wisdom than I bring to the bubble chart, honestly. I think that's really, I think that's a really wise and appropriate approach to, to thinking about it. Because I'll tell you why it's different than my approach. My assumption is that that bubble has gone red because of an externality. So it's not something in the person. It's something in the environment. And yet, that's not always the case. Or, or at least the color is brighter red than it would be if we were having a discussion about the root cause. I think there's a little bit of a risk there, which is that you don't want to completely assume that it's in the person because then the bubble chart is always about, well, let's fix you. And I don't think you want that. But I do agree that it needs to be a balance. And this is actually, it's an important part of the philosophy behind the bubble chart. And I think this is where our work really start to coincide, which is that a lot of times people think about career and what they want from work as career. And career is a series of doorways, which is, I'm going to struggle to get through that door over there because once I'm through that door, I'll be a director. But what people don't think about is what's it going to be like to be in the room once you get through the doorway? What's the in-the-moment tactile experience of that going to be? And so when you design a house, you don't design a house around the doorways because you don't live in doorways. You design around the room. And so a part of what the conversation about the bubble chart does is it turns it into a conversation of what's your in-the-moment texture of your right-now experience of your job? How do you want that to change? So it really lends itself to going deep into how people are experiencing the moment. This is where I see it potentially intersecting. This is super interesting. So when people come to me, when it's red or yellow, I never assume anything, whether it's them or other people or the situation or operate. I assume nothing. What I do assume, though, is I totally have their back and I want to find out and be in their corner looking out at the problem. So I always start there. But what I find is, and it's not dissimilar to like the way I started with my kids, which is, let's just hear the story. What's going on? You know, and they'll tell you like, this person isn't doing that, or I can't get this done, or I'm having problems, whatever it is. I just listen to the story and I do this. It's the same process. I validate whatever it is they're feeling. There's usually a charge around it. There's some anger or sadness or fear, something that made them feel, put it enough that they're willing to make it red. People don't often do it right off the bat. It's usually something that's big enough now, they recognize it consciously, and they're so unhappy that they're going to flag it to their manager. So now they know it's going to lead to a conversation. So it's usually pretty egregious by then. So what I find in every case is there's a lot of emotion around it. So what do I do? I just come in, I hear the story, tell me the whole thing, what's going on? I validate, I'm nodding, I'm listening, empathic listening, whatever you want to call it. I'm listening to learn, not to fix or win. Typical listening technique, really hard to do. And the more I cleared, the better I could do this. But in any case, I'm listening. And now I'm going to, I'll validate them. Yeah, that would be upsetting. Of course, if your stakeholder's not supporting you, or of course, if the process is really broken, or of course, the, they didn't prioritize things, or they're not, you know, aligning to what you need, whatever. 
totally validated. Then when I, I started to pick up now, when they feel validated, they've come back to baseline because they, they've got a chance to vent, release this charge, feel totally validated, safe, if I can create a safe enough space. Then we go into Sherlock you know, Holmes mode. What could be going on? What's going on right now in the team? Like this person that like embarrassed you in a meeting or cut you off or didn't invite you, like, tell me about them. What do you know about them? Like, are they going through a rough time right now? Are they like struggling with things at work? Like, what have you observed? So I go into like, I have them step into the ring with me to say like, what's going on with the person? I, in almost every case, now whether it's true or not, doesn't even matter that much. It's about dissociating so that the person can say, hey, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with me. The world's not an evil place. There's something going on with this person that made them behave the way they behaved. Like that's one approach, right? To start to look at it. Then once they're in a cool place, and they've done this a little bit, depending on where they're at and how much they develop over time, they might say like, oh, I always get upset when this comes up. Maybe there's something going on for me. But I never start there. You tell someone that, they're just going to feel like now you're in their corner, you're supporting the other person, and they get more upset and angry. So it's really like, and you talked about like, how would you diagnose situations? One thing that was coming to mind for me that I think would be really interesting use of like the bubble chart and its applications is even when people run into problems, this is something I've started doing with my team. It's called shadow boxing. Gary Klein talks about this, which is let's take a scenario. This is a scenario that someone's running into. And what's a decision they need to make or you know, what are things they would look for? And then who are some experts? How would they do it? So for example, I might, as a training process for like folks, be like, okay, here's a scenario. You have a choice. What do you do? Write down what you do and why, what decision you made and why. And then we have three experts or three people who've had a lot of experience and maybe have done this and dealt with really challenging situations do the exact same thing. Now that person gets to hear a few different perspectives of like, oh, here's questions, things I could look for. And it's all about not what decision they made, why they made it that becomes really valuable. And so I don't need to tell them what to do necessarily. I just plant seeds and ideas and try to empower them to start looking at the situation and like the behavioral patterns and the cues, the nonverbal to see what's actually happening. And when I think about root causes, I used to always think about, you know, the five whys and root cause corrective action, right? It's like, I used to work in manufacturing, so I would get down to these root causes. But what's the only thing that's changed now is that I believe root causes can, need to include people, like human behaviors. And I find in more uh, cases than not, it's not a process issue. It's something going on with people that they were triggered by, they're looking for, they want to get promoted, so they have to do well in this project. They're getting really aggressive. Or this person's like freaking out because their project was deprioritized or whatever it is. That if you can find some of the underlying motivations and triggers, it's a lot easier to solve these kinds of problems than just going in and plugging in a process. Now, yeah, sometimes, sure. Rarely, though. We're dealing with usually pretty bright people who've already been looking at this problem for a while. It's not likely the really obvious, just put a process in place. It can be, but generally, that's not what I've been finding. That's super interesting. One of the things you mentioned in there is the idea that the bubble chart might be a useful tool for identifying development opportunities, different kinds of development, right? But places like, can I use it as a tool to thinking through exactly what this would look like? I'm thinking through times where bubbles have gone red for me because I've been triggered. And I have to admit, when bubbles go red because I've been triggered, I'm not sure I can point at, like, it feels irrational <laughs> to me. When I'm triggered and I look at myself being triggered, I can imagine an, an intervention that I could do, which is I might have to change the nature of my relationship with the person who I'm working with, which is I'm seeing them in a particular way and I'm stereotyping them essentially because I'm, I'm allowing them to touch some trigger that 
is based upon a stereotype of somebody from my past. If I can just complexify that person, if I can find that whole person, I can see past my assumptions about their why they're behaving the way they are and see the whole person, which is exactly what you're saying. It's interesting. I have a lot to think about in terms of that. Well, one thing I'll plant the seed for that I've like started using it for, which is you start to see the neural pathways, the habit patterns of individuals and organizations. Because when I start seeing it go yellow or red, it's data points for me. Like, what are the things that are triggering in this part of the organization, either to this person or to individuals in the, that have influence and power in this part of the organization? And so if I see a bunch of projects going red in a particular area, that's telling me something about where is the most pain and suffering? Where is the most trauma? And what are the neural pathways, the habit patterns we keep seeing? So sometimes people start realizing, oh, every time it goes red, it's like when I'm dealing with this person or when I'm like dealing with this kind of situation, they start to see those. I can see them usually before they can because they're in the middle of it. It's hard to see it. But you can start using it. for them. Then the question becomes, how do you change neural pathways? And how do you create environments to be safe to fail and to try experiments and to like change the way you respond to situations? I'll take a very concrete way this might work, which is that oftentimes, like, so for instance, I had somebody who was working on my team who hated politics. Anything that had to do with office politics really didn't like it. And so I would steer projects to that person that were from parts of the organization that were the least political. Well, maybe we could have formed a collaboration where I said, look, I'm going to steer you some political projects. And the growth opportunity here is, let's see if you can, if you can find the green in that situation. So this is something you've said before, which is when we spoke and, and other times, which is that sometimes the uncomfortable things are the richest. And so it might be that we actually want to sometimes select uncomfortable projects as growth opportunities. Yes, it's, it's very true. And it's actually super interesting because I think you and I talked about this earlier, which is depending on what your goals are, your personal mission and what you want. So let's say I want to get to the next level. I have to develop certain skills I don't have today in order to get to that level, which means I have to lean out of my comfort zone in order to gain them. So what it does is, who's the guy? Sean Aker talks about this. It's kind of like when you're running at, like, what is happiness, right? It's like, you're, I'm running a marathon. I'm dying mentally and physically, but I'm, I'm running a marathon. Guess what I get to say at the end of that? Or I have a baby. I'm waking up every two hours. I'm losing tons of sleep. I'm exhausted and burned out. But I got this gorgeous little creature that I like brought to life. Like, how incredible is that? So all of a sudden, happiness isn't this like, I'm just smiling all the time. I'm thrilled. It kind of changes the perspective. It's like, what do I need to evolve and grow? Maybe that's what's really juicy for me. And when I'm ready, it's like, maybe initially I need things that are just going to make me feel good because I felt bad for too long. Then when I start looking at like, what do I really want to grow? How, when I start getting comfortable in my skin, in my environment with my manager, then I can say like, you know what? I want to push the envelope and try something new. I might fail but maybe I'll learn something amazing and I'm safe to fail. That's when you really start getting into people who are willing to try new things, become market makers. Their creativity and productivity can rise. They can find things they never realized they were good at, that they love to do. That's when you start innovating. That's when you start tapping into un, like unrealized potential. That's when your organization will pop. One of the things I'm, I'm proudest of my team has become our ability to lateral projects. And what that means is you're partway through a project and something happens. <laughs> but let's say that the thing that happens is that the bubble goes red. Well, if you put somebody in an uncomfortable situation with a project and they find themselves just dying in that project and they haven't figured out how to recover from it, knowing that there's the ability to lateral, 
that project and pass it to somebody else on the team who's not as sensitive to that thing. Is one of the ways to make it safe, that's not a fail. That's just lateral. People do that in football all the time. So it's not a fail, but it does mean that I'm not going to have to hold on to that project for the full life of that project and die on the sword of that project if it continues to not work for me. Part of the way that we did that was that we have enough of a standard delivery model and we know at what phase of delivery we are throughout the life cycle of a project that we can hand it off because everybody knows what that stage of the project is. And so that's made it possible for us to do that. That's really interesting, actually. And like another thing that it's sparked in terms of ways to leverage this model is one thing I've found is once my team, my leads, for example, are sharing where they're at, you know, and we're humanizing more of it, right? We're talking about how we're feeling about it and like what's bugging us and what's what we're struggling with and how we can help each other. What I've been really fascinated and intrigued by is as people become more comfortable and willing to experiment, willing to go out on the limb and try things because they feel safe. They feel like they, that, you know, I have their back or the team has their back. Then it's like they start discovering new things. They start creating markets or opportunities. Then they even start connecting the dots to others. You know what? If the three of us or four of us or all of us were to pool our resources, I've even gotten ideas like that. Like, what if we all did this? I see an opportunity that could help the entire organization. So they start getting out of their swim lane of just thinking or relying just on the manager. It's not up to me to come up with all of the market opportunities and synchronicities and connecting all the dots. Now more people are doing it as they get comfortable to experiment and try things and get rewarded for it. So it's like, it's kind of like when you, like you mentioned the kindling example, I think is a really good one. When you start to light, get people to light their fires and they start to get really into flow states and they get excited and creative, man, the world's the limit. What you start to create then is really, I mean, it'll blow out of the water any input to production model for productivity you would ever come up with consciously. I completely agree. <laughs> and also any retention model, which is any concept you have about how to retain people. But one of the assumptions of the input to production model is that you hate work. And so I'm going to have to pay you to do that work because I'm buying, I'm basically paying you for discomfort. And what it doesn't recognize is that work's great when work is great. Work is great. So what you were just talking about, how am I going to retain the workforce? Well, a part of the way you retain it is you keep putting great work in front of them. Who can resist that? That's irresistible. I had one person who worked on my team and um, I just felt like I had to put a trail of cherry pie in front of her. And for her, cherry pie was the hairiest, nastiest problem in the organization. If I could keep just putting that in front of her, she would go from like problem to problem. And it was so happy in her job. The sky's the limit, man. I think what you created is like the doorway or like the thread the golden thread to pull on because the opportunities are endless. And the amazing thing is it's a really simple tool. doesn't take a lot of time and it has so much opportunity and implications that you can leverage based on your interest and capacity and stage of evolution and so on. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. There's two things there. One is it's a little bit, it's an indictment, I think of, of traditional HR practices that this isn't already developed. Why are we making this up? We're making it up because project allocation has been about productivity not about experience. So that's one. The second thing that we should mention is that this is not a piece of software that you can buy, <laughs> at least not yet. It's a spreadsheet. It's something that you run as a spreadsheet and feed into, into a reporting tool. So we're not actually like selling a tool here. We're, we're talking about a, a method. 
And I agree, it's a surprisingly rich catalyst. Like, think of the discussion we just had about what happens at this moment where work arrives to people. That's what we've been talking about. How does it get there? How do people respond to it? It drives that conversation with a whole team in a way that it would not otherwise happen. And so I really do think that it's a, it's a super valuable thing. But I, I didn't know that. And I'll tell you what, it was partially because I started seeing it go viral in organizations that got exposed to it, like yours. And all of a sudden, it's getting, it's getting used and replicated and things like that. So, so it's exciting. Thank you for the interview today. Thank you for joining us on Work for Humans. Thank you. That's good. How can people learn more about this, Dart? Honestly, right now, it's listening to the podcast. I mean, the truth is that the podcast, what I'm doing in the podcast is I'm interviewing people who I think would end up in the bibliography of a book on the topic of when work is a, is a product when we're, we're, that companies build and sell. So right now, the podcast is the place to listen. Not only is it the place to listen, it's all the original sources. Because that's who I'm interviewing, is I'm interviewing people who can, who can add to this discussion that we just had in all different ways from every walk of life. I'm trying to get some uh, sociologist and a political scientist and an economist and different people who are able to talk about it. So right now it's the podcast. Very cool. I'm excited. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Work for Humans. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. And... Share the show with one person you think would get value from it. Believe it or not, this really helps us grow the show and reach more people who want to build the kind of work that people really want. As always, thank you to my producer, Jason Ames at Ninth Path Audio for his insights into content and his high standard for quality. Final note, the opinions shared here are my own and not the views of Google or Cisco Systems. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.